0: We meet for our third session, if I'm correct in my counting. We have a lot of progress to make today in order to get through to the end of the first part of the book, to The Celestial City, by Friday. And so I'm in a quandary of trying to know how much time to spend just on touching on the events and the characters and how much time to stop and make application and explanation on each event. So I think I'm going to take the procedure of attempting to try to get us all the way up to Beulah land this morning. And in doing so, we'll just have to hit the high marks. It will be necessary for you to have your booklet open right to the middle, and we're going to try to use the map here to demonstrate the progress that we hope to make. Now, in the first two sessions, we have looked at two words that we have used to try to associate the Christian experience, and we have a problem here. Do we have the mic on? It's not coming through over there. It is now. All right. We'll try to make sure we get right into the mic. Thank you. Everybody else over here all right? All right. We use two words which we are going to try to remember to associate the Christian experience. Those words both started with C. Can we say them together? First, ready? Conviction. And secondly, conversion. Conversion. Today, we introduce the third word that denotes the Christian experience, and that is confrontation. If we had had six sessions, we would have added another word, which I would have used before confrontation, and that's the word continuation, for that is, in essence, what the narrow way represents, that the Christian life begins with conviction, it comes to its bloom in conversion, but that's not the end of the Christian life. There is a continuation on into the progress in the knowledge of the things of God. We have learned thus far that the Christian life is begun by the grace of God, and the Christian life will be sustained by the grace of God and the Christian life will be consummated or completed by the grace of God. By that, we mean that God's free and sovereign grace creates life, and man responds to that life with action. We do not teach, as others teach, that the Christian life begins with the free will of man. If it is the free will and a moral ability of man to put yourself into a converted state, young people, then logic would have it necessary that it is dependent upon your free will and moral ability to keep yourself in that state. But if God has put us in Christ, then he which hath begun a good work in us will what? Will perform it? Unto the day of redemption. So, as we have looked at the one lesson in the house of the interpreter with the fire in the fireplace representing the pilgrim's faith and Satan trying to destroy that fire, the source of the Christian life is the sovereign grace of God pouring oil upon that fire to continue our perseverance or continuation on unto glory. But this morning, we're going to now see what confronts the Christian in the way. What confronts the Christian in the way. Before we get started, I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bibles to a couple of passages of Scripture. Acts chapter 14. First, the 14th chapter of the book of Acts. The apostles, the early founders... And promoters of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ were very honest with their converts. And they did not try to give them an image that the Christian life was all rosy, and now that you've become a Christian, your problems are over. In fact, they were very open with them. And in Acts chapter 14, I'll read from verses 21 and 22, the result of one of the first missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in this sense, the final completed aspect into glory. So, tribulation lies ahead between us and our destiny, and the apostles were very honest in bringing this out to the lives of the new converts, lest they be given the idea that becoming a Christian exempts them from problems and tribulations. Now, our Lord said the similar thing in his earthly ministry in John chapter 16. Would you turn there? John chapter 16 and verse 33. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, what is the source of the Christian's ability to overcome? It does not reside in old Adam. It resides in the principles of holiness implanted in the new nature. And that is brought about by the person and work of Jesus Christ. So he says, yes, you're going to have obstacles, but be a good cheer. I've overcome every obstacle, and I'm in sovereign control of all the affairs of your future life. Be a good cheer. I'll see that you reach the destination. Now, all of Christ's sheep shall persevere and to the end of the journey. How many of you this morning may have a notebook or a pencil with you? Any, how many? I imagine some by this time have started leaving those uh, behind. I'd like for you to take those at this time and let me give you something that will help you, I believe, in your study and your reading of the book. Depending upon how much work you want to put into it and how much because you'll profit no more than the amount of work that you put into the book. In your reading, in Pilgrim's Progress, you'll come across characters, events, and places. I'd like to give you four types of characters which you will encounter, and then I'd like for you in your own study, as you're reading through your assignment, to place each character in one of these four categories— And it will help you to understand what kind of pilgrims are talked about in the book. The first type of character which is presented in the book I've called true pilgrims. True pilgrims. So as you're reading through and you come to someone whom you believe is a true pilgrim, write their name down. Now who would that be foremost into where we have advanced thus far? Christian himself, all right? And then we'll also come across faithful. He will be a true pilgrim, hopeful, and a host of others that have lesser uh, time devoted unto them. Now, the second category of character, if you will write this down, false pilgrims. False pilgrims. And then start jotting down how many false pilgrims you come to such as uh, pliable. He thought he'd be a pilgrim for a while, but he proved to be untrue, didn't he? And then we'll come across uh, formalist and hypocrisy. You'll come across uh, turnabout. You'll come across a host of individuals who had initially taken up this thing of a Christian life, but had eventually laid it aside. So there are false pilgrims in the book. And then the third type of character that you'll find in the book I've entitled Weak Pilgrims. Weak Pilgrims. This will especially be brought out in the second part of the book, more so than the first, but you'll come across a Weak Pilgrim in this portion of the book, which is, goes by the name of Little Faith. Little Faith. And so jot down when you come to these characters and put them under that third category. And then the fourth type of character, which you'll come across in the book, I've entitled Enemies of the Pilgrims. The Enemies of the Pilgrims. This would be characters like Obstinate. It would be characters like Mr. Worldly Wise Man and many others, Madam Wanton. And as you are reading through then, you can divide your characters up into four major categories. And this will help you then associate what Bunyan is doing in that he's developing here characters and places and events which will confront the Christian as he makes progress into the knowledge of the things of God. So I hope that will be a help to you, and maybe someday we'll meet again, and uh, you may have that all written out, and you bring it up to me and say, look, here's where I've got everybody uh, divided in Pilgrim's Progress. As Brother Nettles stated last night, if time goes on in your life, for some of you, you will be able to look back upon this week. And I trust profit much. But as it is in most settings and teachings, we don't realize what we're really learning when the teacher is explaining to us what two plus two equals. I didn't realize that when I was being taught that in kindergarten. But it's been a great help to me as I've grown on in the, in, in maturity. And I pray that the day will come down the road in which that if you are confronting problems and tribulations in your life, that there may be some things said here this week that will give you some insight into your relationship with God. All right, let's start now. We, if you have your booklet open. We'll just take a quick sweep of the brush. We leave the city of destruction, which is the world under the wrath of God. The pilgrim falls into the slew of the spawn, which is an error of believing that his sin was too great to ever be forgiven. After getting through that, he went off of the path briefly into the city of Morality. He tried to reform his life by just good, decent living, and that nearly destroyed him. Then eventually he got up to the wicked gate, which denotes true conversion, and there he was met by goodwill, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, denoting God's willingness to receive sinners." Then we go through the gate of conversion and to the interpreter's house, which represents the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us into the walls of salvation and brings us up to the cross. And it was there that our pilgrim had his burden or his guilt of sin removed as it fell off of his back. Our word of explanation at this point. In the normal process of salvation in God bringing a person to their knowledge of their sin, assurance and acceptance in Christ may take place at the wicked gate. That is, that when true conversion takes place at that point, many are given an assurance of their sin. They are justified by faith. But not all have the same degree of faith. As Bunyan brought out in his character developed called Little Faith. And this individual here is being described more so from Bunyan's own personal experience in grace. It was not until a later time in his life that he was given a real assurance of his acceptance with God. So whatever your case is, I trust That if you have a burden lifted this morning and you have a joy in the Lord, it has come about as a right understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross on behalf of sinners. Because remember, in the interpreter's house, do you not remember there how that the interpreter showed the Christian the relationship between the law and the what? And the gospel. Did he not show all of the gospel minister's work? So we must not ever take the understanding that he had never heard about the cross until he got up to the cross. No, this is to help some who are struggling with this matter of assurance. For in the interpreter's house and in the character of goodwill, the willingness of God to save sinners in the person of Jesus Christ has all vividly been brought out. But now we come to the point of the cross. Deliverance has come. He has a role denoting his joy of his acceptance with God. And later on, Bunyan will bring that out of how he temporarily loses that role, that joy, on the hill of difficulty. And he has to go back and recover. Now, notice in your picture there of the map that we come down the hill of Calvary. And as we start coming down that hill, the pilgrim encounters three characters. They are not listed on the map, but if you have read that far, and you have, have you not? All right. Anybody remember the name of those three guys who were sleeping right in the vicinity of the cross? Anybody? What were their names? Simple, Sloth, and what? Presumption. Presumption. What do these three characters represent? They represent what every one of you, if you're a Christian, is going to confront in your Christian experience. And that is religious indifference to the things of God. Right in the vicinity of the cross. In other words, there are people who will live exposed to the teachings of Christianity and remain totally indifferent to it. So, young people, don't think that if you are a new Christian that you're going to go out there and find just everybody real excited about what's happened to you. You're going to encounter religious indifference. And sad of all places, the way our churches are today, some of you may encounter it within your own body of believers Very little enthusiasm, very little interest in the things of God. You see, three fellows, Simple, Sloth, and Presumption. I must read just briefly what they had to say, because the Christian stopped and gave a witness to them. Let me read to you. Here, uh, he tries to wake Simple up, and uh, Simple says this, I see no danger, no problem. Sloth said, "Yet a little more sleep. I just want to rest. Don't trouble me with this. And Presumption said, Every tub must stand upon its own bottom. That's an old English phrase, which means, Mind your own business. I'll take care of my business. You stay out of my business and take care of your own business. And so they lay down to sleep again, and Christian went on his way. If you're impressed with those three characters, go and read the second part of the book and see what happened to them by the time that Christiana and the children go through. It's an interesting analogy that Bunyan develops and what happens to religious indifference. Well, we move on down the hill from the cross and then Bunyan, or rather the uh, analogy is given to us. That in this way of salvation, which walls on either side, suddenly the pilgrim sees two individuals climb over the wall to get into the way. And their names are Formalist and Hypocrisy. What do these represent? It represents what Christians will encounter on the road to heaven, and that is not religious indifference, but religious self-deception. You will meet people who believe they are Christians, but they're only pretenders. Formalist represents someone who can say, well, I just live a good life. And hypocrisy represents the person who's only play-acting. Well, that's what a hypocrite actually means. In the time of our Lord, the word hypocrite meant a play-actor. And when our Lord used that to describe the Pharisees and the scribes, he was saying that you're doing like someone does when they act out a part. For example, in our day and age, we say, um, who was John Wayne? We say, well, he was an actor. If we had been back in Jesus' day, we would have said, who is John Wayne? He's a hypocrite. And that wouldn't have been a derogatory use of the word. Or the word merely meant any actor who took on himself to act out something he was not really and do it before an audience in order to get applause. And so there are people that you will find inside the realm of the professing Christian church who are hypocrites. They are acting out a part in order to get a good reputation. There was something that we noted about formulas and hypocrisy. They did not come in by the way of the what? By the way of the gate. You remember what Jesus said? Was it in John 10? Is that there where he said that? That if, that if any try to climb up into the sheepfold by any other way, they'll be treated as thieves and robbers. For there's only one way. To enter into an accepted state with God, and that is through genuine conversion. So, in these characters, we have religious indifference, simple sloth and presumption, and religious self-deception, which we shall expect to encounter in our Christian journey. Now we come to the hill of difficulty, and just before we get to that, why we encounter a little too little bypaths off. And they were called destruction and danger. And both Formalist and Hypocrisy, they left the way and went into re- to destruction and to danger. Now we come to the hill of difficulty. What does this represent? It represents the teaching that the Christian life has difficulties in it. It is associated with difficulties, and if you'll notice in your map, That the narrow way leads right up over the top of the hill. And if you've ever done any backpacking, why you know that by the time you begin to get weary and tired in the middle of your day, you're looking for some ways that you can go around the mountain a little bit instead of just going straight up it. The Christian experience is not made so that we can find those places of ease and cut corners. We have to face whatever difficulties God's providence brings in our lives. That may mean some family problems to which some of you are being exposed to. Families breaking up, health problems, difficulties. But our Lord has promised that he will never what? Leave us or forsake us in spite of difficulties. Difficulties. What enables us to get through these difficulties? Did you note right down at the bottom of the hill? The spring of life. That is, the grace of God is what sustains us in times of difficulties. Now, what does the hill of difficulty actually represent? It represents circumstances which come into our lives which require self-denial and perseverance. Self-denial and perseverance well we go over the hill of difficulty and we go up the hill and the pilgrim if you have read to that point you know he became very weary as he begins to climb the hill in fact he reaches the point where he can't walk anymore and what does he have to do he has to just get out and crawl just feeling like he can hardly make it any further and then right in the middle of the hill there was a little arbor which denotes that God grants spiritual refreshments to his people in times of difficulties. So when you think that there's something that is occurring in your life, maybe it's not here today. And if you're not experiencing this real difficulty here today, then it'll be difficult to appreciate what we're saying. But put it down in the mind and recall it in that time out there in the future when difficulties really are uh, weighing in upon you. And so there's a little period of spiritual refreshment. And the pilgrim, what happened to him there? He was so refreshed from his difficulties that he went to what? He went to sleep. He went to sleep. Just feel like he was just worn out, so he went to sleep. That is, he became spiritually drowsy. And then when it came time for him to get up and go on, something happened which he was unaware of. And that was he had lost his role, his sense of joy and acceptance. And later on, while he becomes aware of that, and so he has to do a backtrack and go back to that point of spiritual drowsiness. And there he recovered his role. And Bunyan brings that out so vividly that the role was the assurance of his acceptance in the the beloved city. And what did he do? He leaped for joy there. You recall what David did in Psalm chapter 51? He said, restore unto me the what? The joy of my salvation. Not that he lost his salvation, but he lost the joy of it. The assurance of his acceptance with God. And as I stated in yesterday's lesson, some people have less problem with this than others. Some struggle much with this matter of assurance. And the old confessions of faith bring out so vividly that our assurance, when it's exposed to tribulation and trials and sins, can waver. But that does not mean that true faith is not there. Well, timorous and mistrust, we meet them on the way now. And they're running back down the hill. And what had scared them? What had timorous, this timid fellow, and mistrust, what had they seen up ahead of Christian that caused them to turn and run back? They'd seen some lions, weren't didn't they? What do the lions represent? The lions represent persecution at the hands of men. That is, timorous and mistrust fear persecution and what men may try to do to them. We're living in a time in which here in America, at least, we do not have to fear physical persecution because of our faith. That wasn't true in Bunyan's day, though. If you were a Christian of the caliber of a Bunyan and others, then... You might have to be put in jail for your testimony and your practice of the Christian faith. But timorous and mistrust represent some false pilgrims, would be pilgrims, and they fear persecution and what men may do to them, so they give up the journey and run back to the city of destruction. Then we come to what is called the Palace Beautiful. Where is it located? Where is it located? Is it located right across the way? Hmm? Do you see it on your map? Does the, the building there, is it built right across the way or is it a little bit off to the side? Which is it? It's off to the side, isn't it? What does the palace beautiful represent? It represents membership and fellowship in the local church. And what Bunyan, I think, is perhaps showing here is that the church, the fellowship of God's people together, is a thing which is most beneficial to a Christian. But it is not something that you must have, that is, membership in a church, in order to go to heaven. And that distinction needs to be made today. Church membership does not save you. But it sure gives you some boost along the way. You need fellowship with God's people, young people. God made us, and he calls us the sheep of his pasture. What is the characteristic about a sheep? Where do they dwell? Hmm? Everywhere? Yes. Are they like the lone elk? What's the nature of sheep besides straying? They flock together. God's people were not made to be loners. They were made to mutually edify one another in the faith. Find a church and get in there and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The palace beautiful represents the visible church and the fellowship of believers we must move on for our journey now it is from that that they were enabled to see the delectable mountains look at the palace beautiful and then look on down the road past vanity fair to what is called the delectable mountains we'll explain what that means a little more in detail when we get there but it simply means the insights which God gives to more mature Christians Those who have lived longer in the Lord have experienced more, and hence they are enabled to see more clearly how God is dealing with them. Whereas the young pilgrim cannot understand at first the tribulations and the trials. But tribulations work what? They work patience. But you will never really understand clearly the teachings of the faith until they have become experimentally real to you. And so in the church you will be shown that there are things which God has in store that he gives insights into mature Christians. He gives them some experience which the young Christian has not yet been called upon to go through. So the delectable mountains were way off in the distance. Then we come to the valley of humiliation. What does this denote? It denotes humiliating circumstances in one's life. It may come from a bad relationship with a friend, a loss of a job. It may come from losing your reputation in some fashion But it denotes humiliating circumstances. I've noticed that when your camp pastor points out certain people here this week, it just humiliates some. And they want to cover up their eyes when they are called upon to become the spotlight. Young people, the Bible clearly brings out that before you get to heaven... There may be some humiliating circumstances that you'll be called upon to go through. Some of your life's ambitions that you have right now to accomplish, you may see those dreams destroyed. You may see those dreams destroyed. When I was a young man, my life's dream was to pitch the seventh game for the New York Yankees in Yankee Stadium in the World Series. That was my life's dream to follow in my father's footsteps in baseball. When I was converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, and quickly after, my father died very suddenly as a young man. Suddenly that dream began to crack. And my life's ambition that I thought since I was that high I was going to be able to achieve, was destroyed. But you know what, young people? I stand before you today and say I feel a greater privilege of standing here and speaking to this group at Panama City. Now, I'm not making a show on this. I feel it a greater privilege to stand here today and speak to this group of young people in Panama City than to be uh, pitching the seventh game. Of the World Series in Yankee Stadium. You say, you're just saying that. No, I'm not just saying that. God had replaced my natural ambition with a greater love and a greater desire. You may be called upon to go through the valley of humiliating circumstances. And those circumstances may be many through your pilgrim journey. But God will sustain us in that valley. Now, the next session of the way he gets out of the valley of humiliation and he enters the valley of the shadow of death. An understanding here is important. This does not mean physical death. The symbolism in the book for physical death is the river which has no bridge just before you get to the celestial city. What, then, does the valley of the shadow of death represent? It represents the darkness that can come in the soul of a true Christian. You say, well, now, wait a minute, Pastor. Do you mean that this person who has been given all of this light, that he can turn into darkness? Yes, he certainly can. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 10. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 10. For reasons known only to the God of the hill, that is, God himself, sometimes he allows his people who are seeking to know him to go into a state of darkness. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 10. Who is there among you that feareth the Lord? that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no what? No light. Here is a person not who is disobedient, but a person who is seeking to hear the voice of God and wants to be taught, and yet they are in a state of darkness and they have no light. What are they to do when they are in that state? Here's the answer. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. That is, be understand how it is that God saved you to start with and continue to look to that rock from which you have been digged. Look unto Abraham or the pit as chapter 51 goes on to explain. May I caution you here, verse 11. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire that compass yourselves about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks that you've kindled, and this shall you have of mine hand. You shall lie down in sorrow. What's the caution there to young people? When you find that you have no light and no understanding in your present Christian experience, be careful about running off to some religious pep rally, To get the flesh enthused. Don't run off to some prophetic conference. Don't run off to some pep rally type of a thing where people appeal to your emotions and your flesh, because that's only going to give you a greater spiritual hangover. Trust in your God in the valley of darkness. And look to how he saved you like he did Abraham. When he called Abraham alone, Abraham was a pagan and God called him out of paganism. Look how God saved you. And when you feel like that he has departed and there's no light, don't look to some fleshly enthusiasm to kindle up a spirit. Look to the spirit of Christ in the gospel. Now, I passed over some things I didn't intend to to do so. If you'll back up just a moment, in the Valley of Humiliation, it was there that we met the character called Apollyon, meaning the devil. So the term means destroyer. And the devil goes about seeking to destroy one's faith in order that they might give up religion. Now, there were four things that Satan used to tempt the pilgrim in the Valley of Humiliation. I'm just going to name them. First, he tempted him to return to the pleasures of sin in the city of destruction. Secondly, he magnified the difficulties of the Christian life. Christian life is just too difficult. Go back. And thirdly, he tempted him by reminding him of his previous sins. And Christians stood against all of that. But the fourth testing or exposure to Satan, was what nearly destroyed the Christian the valley of humiliation. And that was when Satan overwhelmed his mind with confusion. It would be my prayer that you'd never be exposed to that. You'll be tempted by Satan to go back to the pleasures of sin. You'll be tempted by Satan to disregard the difficulties of the Christian life. And he'll always be reminding you of your past sins. Oh, that God might be merciful and spare you from this overwhelming confusion which Satan can bring in the mind. I believe this is what happened to Simon Peter when Jesus said of Peter that Satan hath desired to what? Sift you, to sift you. I haven't found a great deal of Christians that I have talked with that have ever been exposed to this fourth thing that the Christian was exposed to in the valley of humiliation. Young people, I can only say that Satan is a real person and he has access to your mind and he can get that mind so confused that you don't know which way you're going. Oh, may God spare us from that. But may his grace sustain us. I'm dealing with a couple of individuals right now who have had complete nervous disorders and breakdowns. And their minds, they cannot hardly remember who they are from one day to the next. And these are not pagans out here. These are people who have been attempting to try to serve God. Satan can overwhelm the mind with confusion. But what was the comforting thing to Peter? Satan's desire to sift you, but I have what? I have prayed for you. And when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. Strengthen the brethren. Let's move on. Now, after the valley of the shadow of death, we have now the first companion for our Christian who's brought on the scene. What is his name? Once again, faithful. A Christian companion. Young people, get you a good Christian friend. If you possibly can, find a Christian friend. And by all means, as you're entering into this age in which that you're considering dating and potential marriage here, Oh, look out for a Christian partner to devote your life to. A Christian companion is what Faithful represents. Faithful gives his testimony of his conversion experience, and your camp pastor touched upon one of the experiences that Faithful had this morning with a character named Shame. I think if I remember back to my days as a Christian, as a teenager, and as a late teenager, when I became a Christian, that this was one of the most difficult things I had to contend with as a teenager. Because teenagers, by their natural makeup, are somewhat insecure. They're trying to find your identity. Just the fact that you have to get up sometimes and speak before a group causes you to blush that not right? Well, some of you will get over that. Some of you will never get over that. But it's an embarrassing thing, the age of being a teenager, as you're trying to find your own identity. And then when you become a Christian as a teenager, and all the peer pressure begins to come upon you, then there will be this old character known as shame will cause your face to blush when somebody says, hey, why don't you do this? Why don't we go out and hang one on tonight? Well, I can't do that. Why? Are you a Christian? And then shame. You'll find your face perhaps beginning to blush. Faithful had to confess that, that shame was who he met in the valley of humiliation. Well, then we come to another character. One which is really about my favorite character in the book, outside of Christian. And he is a false pilgrim. Have we read about him thus far? We got up. His name is Talkative. I really love this character. This is a fella who likes to talk about anything. He can talk about the ocean, he can talk about the mountains, he can talk about religion, and he can talk about it in its right way. He knows the doctrines. And just ask him any subject, and he's got an answer, for he loves to talk. And what he says, for the most part, is true. But yet he is soon revealed to be a false pilgrim because he does not live what he talks. He's while the book of James describes that faith without works is what? It is dead. If you say you're a Christian, why show me by your works. And we've learned that Talkative, while he could talk a great deal, He had a very poor reputation with those who knew him intimately. Now, young people, you're going to find that in churches. You're going to find that in youth departments. You may even find it in the lives of some ministers of the gospel who can tell you how to be saved, who can tell you how Christ died on the cross, for this man could do so. But their life is totally inconsistent with what they say. Because when they get out of that religious atmosphere, they can go right over and talk the things of the world with the people who don't know the Lord. Watch out for talkatives as you confront them in your Christian experience. Now, if you have your book still open, we come now to Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair. What does this represent? Notice, it's a huge gay thing like that of a circus. I remember as a little boy out in the country, the first fair I was ever exposed to, those trucks came into that little old country town and they started taking equipment off and putting up Ferris wheels and merry-go-rounds and everything like that. I had never seen such a thing as this. That was an exciting thing. Bunyan picks up on this and he describes Vanity Fair in vivid terms. What is Vanity Fair? It's the world apart from God. Well, how does it differ from the city of destruction? I think in this light, and when I was putting the material together for Pilgrim's Progress, I like what one author said. He said, Vanity Fair is the city of destruction with its gay clothes on, its bright clothes on. Everything that you could want to please yourself, you can find in the city of Vanity Fair. Now I didn't get to go a week or so ago or out to Las Vegas, but I remember when I was about five years old, the first time I ever went to Las Vegas. And that was an experience too. To see all of those lights blinking and flashing down that main strip there was something that has made an impression upon my mind ever since. Every type of pleasure imaginable to please the flesh is available in Vanity Fair. But Vanity Fair doesn't just have lustful things to please the flesh. Bunyan brings out how it has a religious section, too. Some people get more satisfaction to satisfy their lust in religion than they do out in the drunken bar rooms. So don't think that all of vanity is going to be out in the honky-tonks. You can also find it right in the churches as well. So Vanity Fair is the world apart from God. And Christian and hopeful must go through that world. Now notice how that the map brings it out. You see how the church, Palace Beautiful, is off to the side of the way. But Vanity Fair, the way goes right through it. What's that denoting? That we are in the world, but we're not to be what? Of the world. You must be exposed to the world, the flesh, and the devil as you are going toward your destiny with God in heaven. You're not going to be exempted from it. But we are in the world, but we are not to live or be like. The world. Vanity Fair. What happened in Vanity Fair? Something happened to one of our pilgrims. What happened? He was martyred there. His name was Faithful, and there he gives his life. Something else happened there, though. Somebody was converted as a result of Faithful's testimony. And now we're introduced to another pilgrim, a true pilgrim that you can put down in that category. And what was his name? Hopeful. He was converted as a result of faithful's testimony. What note could I give to you quickly in passing here? This goes for pastors, counselors, as well as for young people. Listen carefully. The way to win converts from the world is to live a life which is different from the world. You do not try to carry on with the world in the same way they live in order to try to get them to become a Christian. Hopeful was impressed not with his fellow people in Vanity Fair, but he was impressed about the different life. A faithful. So we learn to live a separated life, a life committed unto the glory of God. We must move on again. As we're leaving Vanity Fair, we're introduced to another character who is a false pilgrim. His name is By ends. You may not have got up to that point yet in your book. What does buy ends represent, Buy-ins is a person who uses religion for reasons of personal gain. He's learned that he can have a good business, and if he wants to have a good store, it's best to go join a church so that he'll get people who go to that church to come to his business. It's using Christianity for self-gain. Some of you, if you've been following the TV and the newspapers, you're finding that buy-ins is also in the pulpit. Ministers who are using religion to build them huge monstrosities of homes to live in. And they're using Christ for personal ends, buy-ins. Identify these people and do not follow them. They may talk well as by-ends could, but he was always careful to only go which way the wind blew. That is, if it was popular to be religious, he became religious. If it was unpopular, he wasn't. So be careful that even those in the pulpit who would be using Christ for self-gain, not only are some ministers out for money, but some ministers are out for fame and power, to have a name made for themselves. If you study the nature of man, you find that money makes some people satisfied, and that's what they're out after. But do you know also, young people, that there is a power that a public speaker has over a group which, if you are self-centered, gives you a high that you are elevated above others. And some people like to use their ability to speak on whatever subject just so that they can get satisfaction from the power that they hold over an audience. So not everybody who preaches the gospel is preaching the gospel for the glory of God. Note that, because you're going to confront it in your Christian experience. Now next, we pass Vanity Fair. We don't show this on the map here, but we come to the hill of Lucre. And there there's a silver mine and a man standing out. By that mine, just off of the straight and narrow way, and his name is Demas. This represents the love of the world. The love of the world. And by ins and all of his friends are going to follow and go off of the way into the influence of the silver mine. Do you remember who Demas was in the Bible? Anybody recall the Apostle Paul when he said Demas has what? Forsaken me, having loved this what? Present world. It didn't take long for buy-ins to to leave the company of true Christians. Just see how much he loves this present world. And you'll be able to pinpoint in and focus on who a buy-in is. Do you see the genius of this man who's writing this book? I tell you... If I wanted to live next to John Bunyan, <laughs> I tell you, I'd have to have my shoes shined and everything meet and order all the time, because I'd feel like here's a person who knew what I was thinking, let alone what I was doing. And that's why when you are exposed to a minister of God who preaches the gospel, and you're exposed to that on a regular basis, sometimes you'll begin to get the idea... That preacher knew what I was thinking this morning. He knew all about me. And that's not the case at all. He's only using the Word of God. and It's the Holy Spirit which is finding out the heart. It's God's Spirit who knows what you are. Not just the minister who is proclaiming the truth. The love of the world. Now we go on and we come by what is called a pleasant river. A pleasant river where that Christian and hopeful are enabled to stop there and eat some fruit off of the trees. The pleasant river, when you'll get to that in your reading schedule, denotes times of spiritual refreshment. After times of difficulties, after times of humiliation, after times in which there's no spiritual light, after encounters with the world, the flesh, and the devil, God is so gracious that he'll call you off from time to time and give you seasons of spiritual prosperity. We think of Job, and we remember of all his persecutions. But do you remember how the book of Job ends up? God blesses Job and restores back to him double all that he had. Why am I saying this? Why would Bunyan bring this out? Because he doesn't want to leave the impression that the Christian life is just entirely morbid. But there are blessings in the way for you. There are joys which lie ahead. There are refreshing times which God has in store for you. Some of you may look back, if you're not already, and see this week here at Panama City. As a refreshing time in your spiritual life. In which that you are now for the most part separated from the peer pressure of the unbelieving world. The kids that you know that are non-Christian. And this can be a spiritual mountaintop. A period of refreshment for you. In fact, some of you may enjoy it so much that you may just say, oh, I'd like to just stay here. I don't want to have to go back and rub elbows with my friends at school that are not Christians and always trying to get me to do this or that. But notice, Bunyan takes care of that too. After that the Christians, hopeful and Christian, get out of Vanity Fair and they feed by the pleasant river, something begins to happen. The path, the straight and the narrow, that ran right by that pleasant river. Now watch me up here for a moment. Here's the river. Here's the path. Spiritual refreshments and the paths running along like this. What happens is that the straight and narrow path begins to bend away from the period of spiritual refreshment. And it begins to get rough. And what also happens is that they come in contact with another path which appears to be smoother and easier. And this is called by Meadow. And so when they had been exposed to this time of spiritual refreshment, they wanted to hang on to that. Instead, God's providence says, no, it's time for some more progress. I have some more lessons to teach you. Only they wanted to stay on that easy path. Just like I said, some of you may want to go back and think that you can have the atmosphere that you're exposed to this week with you day after day after day. That's not going to be, not going to be. I recall in the camps that I've dealt with in young people that in dealing with them for seven or eight years, I saw the same young people come to those same camps and they got enthusiastic and they went back to their churches and they were just going to turn them upside down and then they hit a spiritual hangover. It was just all blah. Can you ever relate to that? And you say, why can't we have in our church... The same thing we have at camp. We want it easy. We want spiritual refreshment because God's providence has something else. Life is not all a honeymoon. And how many marriages have been wrecked because men and women think that? There are yet experiences for us to be exposed to. So what did the two Christians do? They took off Bypath Meadow, and that led them to a place where they ended up in what is called Doubting Castle, where one giant lived with his wife. His name was Giant Despair. Her name was Diffidence or Cruelty. She could show no mercy. And this giant despair, that is, despair came into the Christian's mind, and he began to doubt whether or not that they were ever going to make it. And the giant nearly clubbed them to death. You haven't read that far yet, but I think you'll enjoy that portion of the book. They're thrown into a dungeon. They're left there for day after day after day, and they get so despondent that you know what they contemplate? Anybody want to guess? Suicide, taking their own life. Only they remembered, wait a minute, it's not going to do any good to kill our body. Our mind's despondent now. We're going to live on after this body. And there were two things which finally got them out of the clutches of giant despair and doubting castle. And that was first, fervent prayer. And secondly, the key of promise. Christian finally felt around. He said, wait a minute. I feel something. It's the key. God has promised He won't let His people perish. And they grabbed that key and ran to the lock and unlocked it and escaped out of that despondent, despairing state of mind. Exciting book, is it not? And it's not unreal. For sometimes Christians, when they go off the path and want an easier life than God has ordained, May end up in giant despair's castle and even doubt their acceptance with God. Well, let's move on quickly. They come now to the Delectable Mountains, which they had seen back at the church. This is located in what Bunyan calls Emmanuel's land. I believe it under, it, as I stated, it is to be understood as to meaning The clearer insights into the character of God, which are given to more mature pilgrims or more mature Christians. I would like to think that I've had a little more experience in the warfare with the world, the flesh and the devil than you young people have. And there are people that I like to associate with that have had more experience than I have because you can learn much from them. And in this delectable mountain, there are some shepherds there, which represent pastors who watch over the sheep. Their names are, four of them, knowledge, experience, watchful, and sincere. You want to know how to pick out a pastor? Hmm? Don't go and see if he has suave hair, if he dresses like uh, Burt Reynolds, or uh, he has that charismatic approach. Don't pick out a fellow like that. Be around him a while and see if, first of all, he has a knowledge of the book. Secondly, see if he has experience behind him. What it is to know the Lord and has stood the test of time. Not a turncoat. See if he's watchful over his people. See if he really loves the people that he's shepherding. Or is he just a wolf in sheep's clothing who's using their money and their time to advance his own self? You don't have to be around a person very long to pick out whether or not that they're using you whether they're there to care for your soul. Experience, knowledge, watchful and sincere. And as you grow older in the Lord and advance on down the road in the way to glory, you will become especially appreciative of a good teaching shepherd. So, young people, if you have one, be thankful for it.